Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He, hold the, he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about him, for he himself knew what was in everyone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. So what do the NCAA finals and Lent have in common? The month of March. At the 8.30 service, I I said mistakenly, April. (laughs) And some little madness, of course. Now, as you've heard, our theme this Lent is the mystery and madness of faith. And as Ian joked a few weeks ago, he'd be covering mystery while I'd be covering madness. Lucky me. And it turns out, though, that the lectionary text for the third Sunday of Lent established for us an opportunity to wade into the waters of gospel madness and holy anger. Now, in Jesus' day in the the, uh, cultural milieu of the first century, Stoic philosophy was widely known in the Roman Empire. The philosopher Seneca said this in his treatise on anger. Anger is a temporary madness. So in this scene in the temple, Jesus is outraged. And some who witnessed what he did that day likely thought he was a madman. This Jesus not only overturns tables, he overturns the common philosophical teaching about anger. There was no keeping in check 
his temporary madness. He rages at the established religious authorities in his father's house. For the gospel writer of John, the Logos, the word of God who in the beginning was with God and was God and through whom all things came into being, is also fully and especially human. So this scene is included in the Bible's final four, hello, Gospels. When any story of Jesus' life um, made the cut to be in the final four, we pay attention. Something important is being revealed about this Jesus. And Jesus' anger in the temple clearly was essential for our understanding of him. Now, what's interesting is the writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all placed this scene toward the end of Jesus' life at the um, Palm Sunday or at the entry into Jerusalem before his impending death. But John has placed it at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and it's no accident. Jesus is one, John wants us to see, Jesus is one who experiences the full range of raw human emotions. In fact, right before this scene, Jesus was having a great time at a wedding in Cana where he generously changed 120 gallons of water into 100-point wine and kept the host from embarrassment. So no doubt the guests were all thrilled by this Jesus, who clearly knew how to keep a party going. But by contrast, in the scene this morning, the same Jesus appears onto the public scene in the temple, not as a partier, nor as a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but a Jesus who is enraged. He is enraged by the marketplace within God's house, and he holds a whip of cords made by his own hands. He releases sheep, cattle, doves, all of them meant to be sacrificed. He overturns tables. He pours out the cash boxes. People are stunned and children are afraid. But Jesus' call and ministry, we see, will not be business as usual nor protection of the status quo. Jesus will be a zealous, a disruptor of religious and political institutions. And it will become clear over the story of his life that the power of Jesus' anger correlates with the depth of his love for all creatures. So how do we feel about this Jesus? Are we offended by him? Does this human Jesus crush our cherished version of him? Does this passionate Jesus threaten our set beliefs about how we relate to him in our own lives? The temptation of the church has always been, I think, to domesticate Jesus. But this story is told and told again to remind us that Jesus was a zealot put to death by the Roman Empire. 
He threatened the empire, and he also threatened the religious authorities. They were in full support of the empire's concerns. Jesus' holy anger challenged and still challenges his followers. So what in the world makes us wholly angry? What injustices are we willing to call out? Whose rights are we willing to defend? What moves us out of our complicity, comfort, or safety zone? One thing, we can't do it all, though. We can't do it all. We are exposed in, this, in social media or the 24-hour news cycle that both work to incite our outrage and they prey on our fears. And we are exposed to an overwhelming number of injustices every day. I feel like it's a game of whack-a-mole. There's more injustice and suffering, and with the news, we see it all. But one individual cannot hold all that anger, all that pain, no matter how holy it is. It comes at a price. The risk is harming ourselves and our communities. And anger cannot be a motivating force for action. Love must always be why we move toward action. The comfort is that not every injustice can or should create outrage in us, even when they are justifiably unjust. It was also Seneca who said, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. We have to be cautious that our outrage does not become caustic acid in our individual and in our collective hearts and souls. But if we allow it to work for us, anger can lead us into a deeper spiritual space. And in that space, love dwells. And in that space where love dwells, we can channel our anger back into the world through love. It is love, not anger, that will lead us into greater compassion for our neighbors, and especially the neighbors we'd rather not love. Anger seems to be pulsing through the world right now. It feels like the world is one short fuse away from detonating. The internet does not help. Social media platforms are a breeding ground for misinformation and a constant opportunity for incubation of outrage. Social media conversation threads makes makes our blood boil, and cable TV stokes our rage. Our anger leaches into our bodies and into our relationships. 
And instead of being bound together by love, we are bound together by our mutual outrage toward those who disagree with us. I read a study that showed angry people are more susceptible to misinformation. And angry people are more likely to use that misinformation to guide their decision-making and their actions. Information and confidence usually paired followed an opposite path in angry people. As angry people got more false information, the study showed, they became more confident. It appears heightened states of emotion do not produce heightened cognitive competencies. And this is a caution to us, to us all, not just those we disagree with. Misinformation is something we need to be careful about, we need to be cautious about, from where and how much this information, um, from where it's coming and how much of it we're digesting. Now, practically, how do we hold our anger in a healthy way? Well, here are six suggestions. Wisdom from the ancient Stoics, from modern psychology, and from spiritual practices that have stood the test of time. First, set up prevention tactics. Preempt your anger triggers by preparing for them ahead of time. Anticipate who or what will likely raise ire in you and talk yourself through a possible prevention plan. Second, detect the first signs of anger in yourself so that you can stop them before they explode. When you notice the signs, let the anger flow through you. Watch it like a river, like a branch floating on the river and let it flow by. Third, cultivate inner peace by doing things that relax your mind. Read spiritual writers, practice contemplation, meditate, pray, journal, listen to music, do art, spend time in the natural world. Fill your mind with inner peace. Four, practice cognitive distancing. Delay an answer when you feel provoked. Respond curiously, not reactively. The Holocaust survivor and Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl said this, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Fifth, literally change your body's posture to influence your mood. Slow down. Lower your voice. Breathe. These physical postures send signals to our brains that it's okay 
it's all okay at this moment. And lastly, I'll add that we need to take a big fat break from social media. At least cut way back. It causes us so much stress and that much cortisol, that stress hormone pumping through our bodies is detrimental to our health. We need to take breaks from the toxicity of constant outrage. I anticipate a rough eight months ahead. We can see that we'll be traversing rugged political and global terrain. And we will be challenged in our spiritual, emotional, and familial lives. Our workplaces, home spaces, churches, and friend circles might experience fissures over differing political viewpoints. I pray not, but we need to be prepared. I hope this place, that Montview Church can be a place where we bring our holy anger and we turn it and transform it into holy love. Jesus embodied Paul's words to the Ephesians church. Be angry, he said. Be angry, but do not sin. Jesus' passionate display of emotions, I believe, releases us from any pietistic constraints we might feel that mask hard feelings. Jesus didn't end up on the cross so that churches would be filled with nice people. The same animated passion of Jesus burns in us and the same animated passion in us burned in him. Together, we can feel passion toward injustice and compassion for suffering. And we can practice strategies for managing our anger, even holy anger. We live in a world of warring madness, and people are looking for signs of sanity, wisdom, and calm, and in the church we refer to that as gospel madness. Now may the world see us leading the way into love. Amen.